Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today we have on the show Dr. Kyle Limley, who is the medical director of our pediatric intensive care unit. We're going to be talking about drowning myths and debunking some of the most popular ones. Before we start the interview, I wanted to let our listeners know about Wesley KidCast, presented by the Wesley Children's Hospital, their podcast that focuses on pediatric information. Dr. Limley, Thanks for being on the show. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is Kyle Limley, and I'm the medical director uh, of the PICU here at Wesley. I graduated from St. George's University uh, School of Medicine in Grenada. I did my pediatric residency at the University of Toledo in Toledo, Ohio, and did my uh, critical care fellowship at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City. I joined Wesley uh, Children's Hospital this year in January as the medical director, but I've been doing local uh, work here since about 2018. So could you describe the pathophysiology of drowning? So the pathophysiology of drowning is really fairly simple. Um, we'll start off with just a little epidemiology. <clears throat> so for children less than five years or people greater, or people between 15 to 25 years old are really at the greatest risk of drowning. Uh, so as we discuss the pathophysiology, we really need to define drowning and be as specific as possible. So drowning results in respiratory impairment from exposure to a liquid medium. There are multiple terms that have been used over time, but mostly they just complicate the discussion. We'll discuss drowning as fatal or non-fatal and include discussion on dry drowning and secondary drowning. However, all of the pathophysiology is really basically the same. So in order to drown, your airway has to be exposed to a liquid medium, typically water. The usual process includes someone panicking, experiencing abnormal breathing, trying to hold their breath, flailing to stay above the water, and then subsequent air hunger. At some point during this process, the respiratory drive takes over. It's usually driven by hypoxemia, and the patient then tries to take a breath. This is when the airway gets exposed to the liquid medium, and it can cause laryngospasms. Obviously, aspiration of any substance into the airways will lead to worsening hypoxia, which will result in altered levels of consciousness. This leads to decreased lung compliance and ARDS, and the morbidity and mortality of drowning really hinges on the degree of hypoxic injury, especially cerebral hypoxic injury. Could you describe some of the different types of drowning or some of the terminology we hear near, dry, freshwater, saltwater? Sure. So near drowning is really kind of an old term that should be replaced with non-fatal drowning. The American Heart Association utilizes Utstein, and I honestly don't know how to say his name, guidelines for the definition and terminology of drowning. These were last updated in 2015. Dry drowning is when the airway was exposed to a small amount of liquid and leads to airway or laryngeal spasm. This causes the airway to close and the victim shows respiratory distress or failure. Dry drowning is rare, but it occurs within minutes of exposure. Secondary drowning is a rare finding, and it uh, really is just a late finding of non-fatal drowning. In secondary drowning, the patient develops signs of respiratory distress within 24 hours of the airways being exposed to a small amount of liquid. The scary part, parents aren't always aware there was an actual exposure. Would you please describe the difference between fresh and saltwater drownings? So, historically, we really distinguish between fresh and saltwater drowning. Um, saltwater is hypertonic and so if you drown in salt water more plasma is going to come into your airways and interstitium and it would typically lead to pulmonary edema the increased tonicity of the salt water would also lead to a hypertonic serum whereas freshwater drowning would do the opposite 
right? So with the freshwater being hypotonic, you would get hypotonic serum and it would lead to volume overload. However, these changes really require the victims to swallow a lot of water. We're talking 11 mLs per kilo uh, to have any changes really in the lungs, and then up to 22 mLs per kilo before you really see uh, any change in the serum. So really, in non-fatal drowning, there's no reason to distinguish between fresh and salt water because you usually aspirate no more than 3 to 4 mLs per kilo um, in a non-fatal drowning. Are there any commonly missed injuries associated with drowning, C-spine, or hypothermia? So I think whenever you come on a trauma victim, um, you automatically think of C-spine injuries. But surprisingly, they're really not common with drowning. So they're really unusual. There was a large cohort that was done that included 2,244 patients who suffered a submergent injury, and only 0.5% had a C-spine injury, but all of them had clinical evidence and a consistent mechanism. So really, any patient that um, has a C-spine injury after drowning really should have either a consistent mechanism or a clinical evidence of a C-spine injury. However, if the patient is brought to your ER um, or your hospital and a sea collar is already in place, obviously it's difficult to decide when you can remove it um, if no one really knew exactly what happened because these patients typically aren't coherent and really can't uh, respond at that point in time. So you really should leave the sea collar in place uh, just like you would routinely do unless you can make sure that there was no mechanism consistent or that there was no clinical evidence of a C-spine injury. With the sea collar in place though, airway management obviously is more difficult Another thing that can be missed um, is hypothermia. Sometimes you even need a low temperature thermometer to really pick up on hypothermia uh, in these patients. A lot of patients do come in hypothermic and there was old belief that really cold water drowning is more survivable, but that was never really supported in the literature. The current thoughts are really normothermia is the goal, but if they come in hypothermic and they're extremely sick with significant cerebral hypoxic injury, at least warming them up to about 32 to 35 degrees Celsius makes sense. And you can keep them with a mild degree of hypothermia, but don't be afraid to go ahead and take them up to normothermia either. Would you explain dry drowning and any myths associated with it? So again, dry drowning is when the airway was exposed to a small amount of liquid and it leads to airway or laryngeal, laryngeal spasms. This can cause the airway to close and then the victim shows respiratory distress or failure. There is really a misconception that this will occur without warning and that the patients will just up and die without any evidence of respiratory distress. However, the victim will still progress through the normal signs of respiratory distress and progressing to respiratory failure. So you really don't have to worry about your kid just waking up or you waking up to your kid just dead in the middle of the night from a dry drowning episode. Also, dry drowning occurs within minutes. So you're not even going to really leave the pool before you're going to notice that uh, the kid is having signs of dry drowning. Secondary drowning, however, um, those tend to occur later within 24 hours but they still show signs and symptoms prior to progressing to respiratory failure. So you're still going to be able to see your child having signs of respiratory distress, increased work of breathing, coughing, working harder to breathe uh, before they progress to respiratory failure. What signs and symptoms should a provider watch for after a near drowning event? 
Patients with loss of consciousness, consciousness who present uh, comatose or GCS of less than five likely have poor outcomes. Patients with persistent apnea, if they require CPR, or if they have a prolonged resuscitation, i.e. greater than 25 minutes, also increase the risk of poor outcomes. Patients that present after non-fatal drowning really need to be assessed for respiratory distress, their neurologic function, and uh, looking at their EKG. Electrolytes and potentially a drug screen should be sent as well, especially for those patients that in the 15 to 25 category. If they're asymptomatic, you really should observe them for about eight hours. And if they remain normal um, around the eight hour mark, you can send them home. The reason for this is most patients develop respiratory symptoms within seven hours of the event. You should get a chest x-ray, but you really should time it closer to the seven hour mark, unless obviously they're symptomatic before that. And you're looking for uh, infiltrates, especially diffuse infiltrates, and the ground glass appearance associated with ARDS. So the classic respiratory distress and ARDS symptoms are really what you're primarily watching for. And if you're able to send uh, the patients home, you really should educate the patients and especially parents on really what to look for from a, a symptomatology standpoint uh, for the next 24 to 72 hours. What does the first 24 hours of in-hospital treatment look like for a resuscitated drowning victim? So again, we're looking for hypoxic injuries. So looking, monitoring their neurologic, cardiovascular, and respiratory uh, system still heavily over that first 24 hours. So if there are neurologic concerns, you really need to treat them like they have increased intracranial pressure. So elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. You want to make sure the sodium is adequate, at least in the 140s. And then if there's further concern of increased ICP, you need to treat it as you would any other patients. However, in these patients, uh, specifically, avoiding mannitol uh, due to its risk of hypotension is really a prudent uh, thought. You should treat seizures aggressively with non-sedating anti-epileptics, specifically uh, Keppra um, or Phosphinitoin would be reasonable. You really should avoid neuromuscular blockade if possible. And again, maintaining normothermia is ideal. You should also maintain normoglycemia like we should for any uh, patients with increased intracranial pressure. It is important to closely monitor for oxygenation and ventilation as that's the primary uh, respiratory concern, obviously. You can use high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation if necessary to ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation. You should intubate these patients if you need to secure the airway for transport or if they develop significant ARDS, so you just need improved management of ARDS. If you need positive pressure ventilation, you need to remember these patients may require more fluid uh, because of the limited blood return uh, with the cardiopulmonary interactions that positive pressure um, um, leads to. These patients obviously can have bronchospasms, and you need to manage those with bronchodilators, just like with any bronchospastic events. Um, typically, you don't need to treat these patients with empiric antibiotics unless the water is grossly contaminated or if the patient has clinical signs of pneumonia. If you do need to use antibiotics, you want to pick broad-spectrum antibiotics. You need to think about organisms like um, Pseudomonas, Proteus, Aeromonas, and those less common causes of pneumonia that, that we often see. In these patients, it's really critical to avoid hypotension, and you really want to monitor for dysrhythmias, especially in the older patients. Is there a preferred airway to obtain in the field? intubation versus uh, superglottic airway? So given the risk of aspiration, 
with these patients, I would recommend doing endotracheal intubation over a supraglottic airway. Now remember, if they do have a C-collar in place, you want to remove the C-collar but maintain C-spine while you're intubating these patients. And also due to their risk of aspiration, you really should place an NG tube prior to intubating uh, to minimize that risk as much as possible. However, I also always recommend placing an NG tube prior to intubation just so it helps you know where not to go. So you know um, which hole you really should be directing the breathing tube in in case you can't see the cords fully. Do you have any upcoming projects that our, our listeners might be interested in? We actually do. We're just starting a new podcast called Wesley Kids Cast. So uh, Erin Hageman is one of our nurse practitioners, and she's in charge of that podcast. And I know there's some really interesting and great episodes that should be coming out this summer. So look for that. And you can find that podcast anywhere you find Wesley Trauma Talk. Dr. Limley, thanks for being on the show. To all our listeners, please remember you can always find educational objectives to all our podcasts on our landing page at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. And you can find that at the additional resources link on the left-hand side of the page. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next Even Tuesday.